Welcome to Notes from the Field, presented by Canon Press and Noeo Science. For all your homeschool science needs, be sure to check out noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com. N-O-E-O science.com. All right. Hey, good to be here with you, Gordon. Great to be here, Will. And I was really excited when you rejected my proposal for this week's show and provided a much more exciting one. Yeah. I was I was trying to be all intellectual and stuff, <laughs> and you're like, let's just let's just tell tales, not tall tales, but tales from our time out in the in field. The, yeah, time in the field. So, story time. Story time with Ranger Will and Ranger <laughs> Gordon. <laughs> That's right. Well, and that's uh, you know, the value of story. Um, mm-hmm. My wife's a great storyteller, so I, I, and you're a pretty good storyteller too. I'm awful, but I'm going to ride your coattails and okay. at least have some bursts of interesting observations. I wouldn't call them stories, right? But this should be fun. Well, that's one of the main reasons why we study life is that we derive an enjoyment out of it, and uh, it's not just this soulless pursuit of knowledge, you know, knowledge of biology, knowledge of physiology. It all sort of starts out with just this childlike awe and wonder, getting out and seeing things, catching things. And that's something that all parents of homeschool kids need to realize is that you don't want the wonder to be diminished because of the curriculum. Yeah. And curriculum is often a big squasher of wonder and enjoyment. So um, nothing wrong with, you know, the structure of curriculum, but don't let it squash that childlike wonder. So today we're just going to tell stories to try to enhance that wonder. Don't lose it. Yeah, Kids have it and adults need to cultivate it because that starts to wane or it can wane right. if you're not careful. No, and it's amazing too how powerful, just if you're looking about and thinking about educational outcome, a lot of studies have shown that, you know, an emotional experience while observing something or having your hands on something, the retention of that memory is nearly, you know, for for that person's lifetime. Yeah. And that's why we have lab and, and not just lecture. Yeah. Because lab is experiential. You actually see it. Um, now, getting in the field is even better because it's often a living thing, not a dead thing. <laughs> right. You know. Well, and, visceral reactions of any kind are, are tend to be stronger. A strong distaste, disgust, but joy. Mm-hmm. You know, you remember those moments. Yeah. Of stepping on the slug with your bare foot or, right. or seeing some amazing creature for the yeah. first time. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, some of your tales here, sir. Tales, well, not yeah. meaning fictitious, but just tales in Yeah, good, good where do you fun. want me to start out? Young, I'm, old? You just go. I'll just go. Well, um, there's no particular order here as far as age, but um, I wanted to start out with just a, an observation that a lot of people we call, biologists call, charismatic megafauna. Now, charismatic megafauna are usually big creatures that are there's some sort of great appeal to the general public, like the giant panda bear or 
a humpback whale or a grizzly bear. It's usually big or some kind of uh, really cool characteristic about it that makes it popular even to a non-biologist. Like Andre the Giant. (laughs) And so, and that's why there's a lot of competition for a biologist to wind up studying those because there's a, a large appeal. And then when they're talking to lay people in a party or some social gathering, they don't have a hard time piquing people's interest because they get to talk about how they've taken blood samples from, you know, hibernating grizzly bears or, or right. <laughs> that gets everyone's attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I don't know who, who does that, but um, if you're just studying some, some drab subspecies of sea bass, it's hard to pique people's interest. And I'm the kind of person that for some reason, maybe it's this, uh, a love of the underdog, but I really like things that may not pique the interest of other people because they're sort of- Uncharismatic microfauna. Yeah, they're (laughs) uncharismatic (laughs) microfauna. Exactly. And so some some of the things, I I did throw in charismatic megafauna, one of my stories, but one was I did my PhD on, on the reproductive ecology of the Eastern box turtle. And they're cool. They're a good looking turtle, but they're not huge. They're, you know, size of a little bigger than a softball. And uh, they're, they're pretty, but I, I studied their reproduction. So I got to see them at night after a, a really hard uh, late afternoon Virginia downpour. Oh, That's wow. what brought them out nesting. And oh, wow. so when I, when I went out to the field where I, I would try to find them nesting, it would be dark. Everything would be wet and shiny. And I'd find a box turtle nesting. And it sometimes takes several hours of me just hunkered down. I try not to spook them because if you spooked them too fast or too early in the sequence, they would stop and walk off into the woods. But if you held back for a while until they were really committed to digging, they would alternate with their hind legs, digging, 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 scooping out the dirt in little tiny uh, footfuls of soil and shoving it to the side and back. And then they would hollow out a nice flask-shaped hole, take several hours to do that. And then after the hole was nice and uh, the right size, then I'd see them tremble. And then I'd see their vent, their cloaca start to expand. And then this big white egg would slide out. Wow, now, some people have amazing. seen YouTubes of sea turtles yeah. plopping out bunches of eggs. But yeah. it was really neat to see just this terrestrial turtle under the cover of darkness plopping out three or four eggs well and the whole process from start to finish oh yeah the whole process did they back in how did they get in the hole once they were done digging it or they just go and no they would just dig a hole and stay right behind them okay yeah their back legs would dig the hole out and it was a hole that was a little bit bigger than a golf ball size diameter and um and then they'd start plopping eggs in. Amazing. And then they would usually, after they plop an egg in, uh, the she would curl her toenails because the egg shells were sort of leathery, easily puncturable. And she'd curl her toes in so that just her knuckles would be there. And then she would reach her back leg in with just the knuckles and nudge, nudge the egg as far uh, forward in the hole as possible. Because the hole sort of was a pear-shaped hole 
that curved a little bit under her body. So she would push the egg forward and then pull her leg out and then plop another and do the same. And then after all the eggs were laid, she would uh, alternatingly use her legs to scoop dirt and sweep it back over. And then after she swept the dirt back over and filled the hole level, ground level, then she would uh, look like she was doing an Irish jig and start tamping the soil with her her back legs, rocking back and forth. Oh, this is um, fantastic. It, it was I can just, just see great. it. Now, if you were the type of person that needed to, you know, have something go, 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 really, really some people who've seen nature documentaries and they've I, they've got to see a cheetah running after a a gazelle or something like that. That's fast. It's dynamic. This is slow and it's but it's really really fantastic. And you're seeing you're you've got you're getting such insight there. Yeah. Into that creature. Right. By being able to find and then observe the whole process. What um did you guys radio tag these these gals ahead of time? Well, you know, How'd you I locate was, them? I was tracking twelve. Uh, with radio transmitters, but prior to uh, the- pri- during the whole nesting season, but I I wouldn't uh, necessarily. Sometimes I would just track them on a good night for nesting, and I'd find them just hunker down, not nesting, even though I knew they were loaded with eggs. And then I discovered that this one field in my study site it was a mode field, not a a natural meadow. It was a mode field. The turtles, I, I just gave up trying to just track my radio transmitted turtles, and I would just check the field because all sorts of, it was a mecca for, you know, laying eggs. Interesting. Um, and so, I would get most of my turtle data from just random turtles. Some were, some had radios, some didn't, but I just was getting as much data on the eggs as possible. And that was just fantastic. Um now, another story that wasn't related to, you know, my research, it was, uh, I was part of the Virginia Herpetological Society, and we would go out on these spring survey meetings just looking for different species of reptiles or amphibians, seeing if there was any new records, county records, and, you know, this species has never been documented for this county. So yep. our data would go into range maps and stuff like that. It was just fun because you had professionals, amateurs, you had old people, you had young kids out there. We'd break up into groups. And one of these uh, outings was a survey at Twin Lakes in Central Virginia. And we went out at night uh, looking along the shore of the lake and there were northern water snakes cruising the shore. Uh, we saw them in their, our flashlights. And they were cruising the shore for frogs and toads to eat. And I had this goal, besides catching reptiles and amphibians, I had this goal to get over my phobia of being bit. I like to catch snakes, but I had the heebie-jeebies about getting bit um, by a big, bigger snake. Yeah. Um, and I knew snakes, it didn't hurt that much. It's just there's something about getting bit by a snake that was just, uh, I was a little angsty about. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to get over that. So I, um, I thought, well, northern water snakes are invariably grumpy. They're just mean, bad-tempered <laughs> snakes. And I thought, well, I'm going to get over my fear once and for all. And I'm going to catch a northern water snake 
uh, and in such a way as to not get it. Usually when I catch something like that, I'm like trying to get its head under control very quickly so I don't get tagged. Yeah. But this time I thought, okay, I'm going to get bit. So I'm going to just grab it mid-body. So there was this big old water snake and um, I saw it in the flashlight and uh, grabbed it mid-body and sure enough. He hauled off. He hauled off and swung around and latched onto you. Latched onto my forearm. And um, man, pulling and a, it, Paul and the it, apostle yeah. routine here. Yeah, it was one of those. Yeah, but it was on purpose. Paul didn't. <laughs> Paul was just gathering firewood. <laughs> yeah, and it was true. a viper too. Um, <laughs> this was not a viper. Okay, this was bad a non, No, no, it was good. But uh, <laughs> it whapped me good, and, and uh, it was bleeding, um, but it didn't hurt that much. And it, and it actually, to some degree, it's not like I'm going around wanting to get bit any more but um it it broke the ice awesome and uh uh it was fun you know when you're having those kind of close encounters a very interesting exchange between critter and person yeah it's invigorating shall we say absolutely so will tell me a story all right so um i'm sure you felt this way this is a hard hard task um i was able to during my summers off from college, I was able to work a couple of internships and then after college, a couple of field seasons in different parts of the world uh, or different parts of the U.S., excuse me. And um, I would say one of the, the more just kind of wild experiences, my first real experience in the remotest country uh, in, in Alaska, I got a summer gig working for the USGS, uh, U.S. Geological Survey. They have a biological resources division. And there's this couple, this really neat married couple scientists that had been running a field station out of uh, Arctic Alaska on the Colville River Delta for like 10 years. And they mostly been studying loons and swans. And this is more of a, I guess, a kind of a, a look at what the landscape required of us type of tale. Uh, this, was, this was a remarkable landscape. It was a bleak landscape. They, they, they flew us to Prudhoe Bay from Anchorage. We got trained in Anchorage to shoot at a cardboard grizzly bear cutout being pulled towards us on a skateboard. Wow. Once we could shoot that thing with a bear slug a couple of times, we passed. <laughs> that was our training. With a pistol or with a With a shotgun. So okay. they just put a slug in there instead of those BBs, just a big old metal slug. Um, and so they flew us uh, up to Prudhoe Bay, which is kind of the heart of uh, the pipeline um, and where a lot of that oil starts entering the pipeline in Alaska. And then they flew us about an hour west in a helicopter. And man, when we left Prudhoe Bay West, all you could see was white. It was mid-May and you could not tell the difference between the sky, the ground, and the river. It was all oh, just white. slightly different shades of white. And so we landed there and um, had to dig out the Connex unit to set up and dig out the platforms for our, our sleeping quarters which we set up. Had they to, were buried? Or? They were just buried in snow. And we had to chop ice for the first month and a half for all of our water needs. And wow. I, think, I think just that, watching that river break up and the subsequent thaw and just the constraints mm -hmm. that that river posed on us, I think was the, really the most amazing part of that field experience. The river, wow. was, the river was shockingly shallow at the delta because it drained so much geographic area. It was right. just sedimented in. 
just so much sediment. Uh, silt or yeah. pebbles? Yeah, so silt, uh, silt and sand. And in fact, so silty, we had these twin um, pontoon boats called Zodiacs. And we would scoot around the braided river channels of the Delta to find loon nests wow. and shorebird nests in those vehicles. Um, but one of the things we would do for fun, which the I'm no, I'm no mechanic, I'm not much of a vehicle guy, but uh, one of the guys on the team was, and he showed me a trick where we'd be zooming down a channel, and these channels are really shallow, easy to get the propeller stuck. And so we would do this little trick where we'd get going pretty fast with the 25 horsepower, and we get to the edge of the river, and we could see there's a little pond or a lake across the wet tundra from the river a few yards. We'd zoom towards the riverbank, which was flat, and we weren't hitting a bump there. You pull the prop up, and you slide across the wet tundra and land in the lake. Oh, wow. And so we, that was just being able to experience yeah. uh, that, but to maybe to tie it to biology a little bit here, the only place... Two carnivores that I've seen once and, and only though only once were at this location. Uh, one, we were on the western part of the delta after having to go out into the Arctic Ocean with our Zodiacs and go a fair number of miles west. Uh, we had to camp on a mud flat that night because the seas got too rough. And our boss said, hey, if you get fogged in and the seas get rough, all you have to do is pull out your compass point it south and step out of the boat. And that's how shallow the ocean was there. It was so sedimented in, we could step out of the boat, it's two feet deep, and you pull your, pull your Zodiac to the mud flat, and we had to set up an emergency camp there um, wow. that night. And the next morning, we found polar bear paw prints all around our camp. Oh, wow. That was the polar bear's first entrance to our world. Um, the next one's coming up here in just a second. We continued on our trip and made it to this western part of the delta with very, very different, higher tundra, lots of sand dunes. I woke up one morning and uh, hopped out of my tent, and the most good-natured, really fun guy named Rich, hopefully he'll listen to this show, he, he just was hollering while brushing his teeth. He was exclaiming for joy, and I looked over the side, and there was a wolverine just oh, wow. loping along the sand dunes, wow. just ignoring us entirely, just loping along, and we got to go over and, and got some good... Um, Photos of its tracks. Right. So when you were, you got the paw prints of the uh, polar bear. Yeah. Were they all around the tents you were sleeping in? They so, were all around so that they temporary were checking camp. You out? They were checking us out. Oh man. And it was early. That reminds that's... me of that Far Side cartoon where this the polar bear says the other when I love these, you know, referring to the igloos, crunchy on the outside, chewy <laughs> on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, we were nervous. Yeah. We were nervous and, and our nervousness was exacerbated uh, the last week of the summer. Polar bears tend to come back to land, you know, in September. Um, but there was a group of scientists that came up with the head of USGS, a group of Chinese scientists, and they came up to look at some of our shorebird uh, mist netting efforts. And right about that time, one of them spotted a polar bear north of camp. And so we were, we were just on high alert for the next three or four days. What could you take refuge in? We, just your, zo your Zodiac? Or? There's really nothing to take refuge in. We were on top of the Connex looking at it with a spotting scope and just praying it didn't come down towards camp because we're in tents. Uh, we have our shotguns. Right. Um, and, right. Uh, but there, you know, and we had to carry our shotguns with us uh, for the next week when we went anywhere uh, just because so of that So getting to the loons, did you hear the eerie 
calls of the loons a lot? Yeah, we did. There were actually three or four species of loons up there, different than the ones in Minnesota, not the common loon, but a couple of other species. And just watching the process of egg hatch and finding the nest first, finding a nest is kind of like, you know, it's just a beautiful experience, uh, yeah. not unlike the one you described with the, the box turtle. Right. And just finding that nest with those deep chocolate colored two eggs, always two eggs, and watching those little babies uh, get fed by mom and dad for the first okay. few weeks. That, we watched that a lot. We were doing foraging ecology and mm -hmm. reproductive ecology mostly. That's great. Yeah. It's funny, my wife will tease me about things that I don't remember versus the things I do remember. <laughs> and of course, I could recite, you know, virtually every minute of my time up there. Right. But recalling yeah. yesterday, <laughs> I'm not so good at yeah. it. What else uh, have you got for us, Gordon? Well, you know, I'll just throw in the, the mandatory charismatic megafauna when we were filming for uh, Riot in the Dance Water. Uh, Dane and I, my son who was a, a cameraman, was rolling. And we were following a few whales, you know, uh, mid-morning into the afternoon. And we weren't getting much behavior. Some They were some males that were just hanging around Monterey Bay before heading south um, for the winter. And uh, they were doing some peck slapping and tail fluking, but nothing huge, but we got some good footage of that. But then as the afternoon wore on, they were getting a little more perky. We were cruising along in this small whale watching boat. And uh, Dane could, I th think, sense something was coming. So he had his red camera rolling at super slow-mo, um, which is the Cadillac of Hollywood cameras. And he got it. Uh, this huge whale came shooting out you know, humpback, uh, humpback. Um, and it's in the movie, um, in all of its glory. And, um, that was uh, tremendous to see that kind of mass hurl itself out of the water was just fantastic. Mm. And then the thunderous roar as it hit the water, that, that will be quite the experience for for anybody. Oh, yeah. But on the other extreme, the uncharismatic microfauna, as you put it, when I, we were at Liberty University, I was involved in some field research with the peaks of otter salamander up in the Blue Ridge. And they're a, a fairly abundant salamander, but very limited in its worldwide distribution. They only exist in 35 square miles of the Blue Ridge. And they're a cool looking. Uh, salamander, fairly skinny, dark colored, with a metallic gold mottled stripe down their back. And we would go up and do surveys of them because we were doing a timbering survey. You know, what were the effects of timbering on their population? And I won't go into that, but we would go through our plots, which were five meters by five meters, and we'd We'd have our headlamps. It was after rain, heavy rain in the fall um, or during a rain. And we would, five of us abreast, and we'd all have a one meter wide lane that we would crawl through counting salamanders and surface active salamanders. And, you know, most of the time you'd see them just tootling across the ground. But occasionally 
they would be up on the understory, the low plants. And there was one time where I saw this beautiful peaks of otter salamander just draped across a fern leaf Mm. about a foot or two above the ground. So ferns are very delicate. So it doesn't take much to bend it over. But this salamander was so light, it could crawl on this fern frond and uh, just be draped across glistening because they're wet skinned, shiny, the metallic gold. Mm. Uh, And just seeing something like that in its pristine, you know, habitat, glistening, beautiful. It's a different kind of experience than this huge humpback whale. Absolutely. uh, Leaping out of the ocean. Yeah. But for me, every bit as enjoyable. Oh, yeah. Now, I can't, I'm not telling you or anybody, any listener to say, you must like the salamander experience just as much as the, the big one. Gordon but, did corner me one time and, and he did insinuate that, just so yeah. listeners know. And I call it the magnificence. <laughs> I even name a talk after. It's called the magnificence of the mundane, where we just, instead of getting, rolling our eyes and going ho-hum at a common thing, whether it's a robin in your backyard, uh, start looking at detail. Start looking at the intricacies even. And, and sometimes you go, well, I know it's a robin, but, you know, been there, done that. Well, then look up information about the yeah. robin. The more you know about something, the more you appreciate it. And the, the boring, the mundane starts to become less, less boring. That's right. I had a mundane experience. Um, I was living in South Coastal Alaska for a time. And we were on Prince William Sound, and there's a little tiny house uh, there, and you could have an amazing picture view of the, of the Sound and Hawkins Island, and, um, and we called it the White House, which was fun because it was this tiny little house that happened to be white and the paint was peeling. But anyway, there at the White House, at my picture window in the morning, the Northwestern Crows would just hang out, um, and they'd come back from the coast, come back from the harbor where they're eating blue mussels and they're very similar, of course, to uh, American Crow, slightly smaller, more nasally vocalization. But I had the time to actually just sit and try to even sketch, sketch that crow. He just stayed put. And so I was able to, to even though I don't consider myself very artistically adept, uh, probably one of the best things I've ever sketched just because I had the time and the mm-hmm. Lord gave me a nice rainy morning yeah. where I didn't have to be anywhere else. That's great. And it was just, it was just joyful. Yeah. And sometimes we're too much in a hurry to enjoy anything. Yeah. The psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. And part of that being still, we can meditate on his word, we can pray. And that that's all great. But when you're a Christian and you're pondering the beauties, the intricacy, the glory of creation, you're, as I've said before, you're, you're getting to know who God is as an artist, as an engineer. Be still. Yeah. Be still. And as you're pondering and, and observing closely this critter, whether it's big or small, common or rare, you can look at that creature through new eyes and say, this is what my maker has wrought with, you know, this is something that he created. He designed the architecture of it. And that is something that is one aspect of getting to know our our maker yeah um that's he, good we study our body and we go well yeah we're the 
pinnacle. We were made in his image. And so it's a great thing to study our body, but, you know, look at all the other bodies he's made. Yeah, I'm, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about this on one of these shows, but I'm so thankful for the work, the the heavy lifting philosophically that the intelligent design community has been doing for years yeah. in identifying just design characteristics yeah. and, and approaching natural history and biology and, and chemistry, of course, with this assumption that when we assume that there's design here, it really causes us to see things differently. Yeah. We, and, we, yeah. we intuitively know that there's intention and purpose and that shapes our understanding. Right. Uh, so maybe one more, one more uh, field note from each of us, if, if sure. we can. I, I just can't sure. help it. So um, a couple times in college, the college buddies and I would go up to Hawk, uh, Hawk Ridge in Duluth, Minnesota. And we'd go up there for the fall, fall raptor migration. And uh, this is a really neat place, Duluth, Minnesota. I know there's a lot of Duluthians or former Duluthians around these parts, um, uh, a lot of Minnesotans. But anyway, this, the position of that town is really geographically interesting because it's on the very western edge of Lake Superior. And so when the hawks uh, head south for the winter, a lot of them have bred in the Arctic or the boreal forests of Canada, and they start coming south in the fall, they decide, most of them, to not fly directly over this humongous lake. And so instead, what they do uh, by design is they notice that there are these thermal updrafts coming off the rocks along mm -hmm. the shoreline. And so that as that hot air rises, that lightens their load. They don't have to spend as much energy flying. And so they take these thermals and ride them. And then they eventually ride them around the edge of the lake and continue south. Wow. Well, and, that, and it funnels them right over Hawk Ridge. And so there's a permanent bird observation station there that's operated. And we, we spent a couple uh, days just standing there with these guys who've been bird watching for decades. And, and one of them would have his binoculars out and he'd say, and we could see a speck with our binoculars. Right. And he would say, immature bald eagle. And we're thinking wow. to ourselves, what? <laughs> You've got to be joking. And at first I was really incredulous. Mm -hmm. But, you know, maybe 10 minutes later, here comes an immature bald eagle. Right. That he's learned to look at that silhouette in flight right. and see subtleties see the, that most of us weren't attuned to yet. Exactly. And we see that we can actually understand that when we have a really good friend. So some of us know somebody well enough that we recognize their face. But when you really know someone, you can tell them a long ways off. Yeah. Their gait. Walking away from you. Yeah. Yeah. That's you know, true. Walking away from you. A long ways off, you know they're, how they walk. And that's the neat thing about biology. I've spent a lot of time looking at a particular type of animal or plant. They can recognize it right away just from a distance. Yep. Even if it's a tree, you know, they can't see any detail. Like they can't see needles or anything like that. But they know, okay, from a distance, there's general shape. That's a ponderosa pine. Yep. Um, and that's, that's neat. And you, it's a lifelong study. There's, that's there's right. thousands exactly. and thousands of species. So yeah, you get to know your, your hobbies, but start to expand your list and start to get to know them better. Yeah. I guess another wonderful experience, I'll just keep it brief, um, is another riot in the dance uh, moment where we went to the Homosassa and Crystal Rivers of Western Florida. To film the Ooh, manatees, the manatees, Ugh. and that was man, that I'm was just wonderful. That I, the shark experience was very 
very intense, but the manatees are just the opposite. Um, getting into the 72 degree water um, and just having these these gentle giant underwater giants come up and they had this sort of really rough cracked skin with a little hair sticking out. It, it wasn't the most beautiful skin in the world, but they were friendly underwater herbivores that, that would come up to us. Some of the young would come up to us and we could rub their bellies or their backs. And uh, yeah, the uh, people that were taking us out were pretty chill. You know, some some of them are pretty intense and don't touch, don't touch. But our guides were were fine as long as we weren't harassing them. And the, yeah. the, the manatees were really coming up to ask, ask for it, you know. Yeah. They wanted to be rubbed. Yeah. Um, so you'd rub their belly, rub their back. And uh, it was just- <laughs> Oh, man. Such- Different creatures, and um, there's something for me. I I like seeing cool things, but there's something about touching. That's probably why I like herps. Yeah, you're more of a bird guy. You tend to handle them a lot. Yeah, you can handle them. Yeah, birding you can handle if you have a mist net, right? Yeah, but I love to get up close, not to harass it, but to hold it. Yeah, and to touch something like that, you get to see it, you get to touch it, or hold it, and uh, and then let it go. There's something that really is hard to. Oh, that's just as good as it gets. I mean, that's like the Adam experience. I I just know that Adam had a and those my experiences son Dane, because he got hugged by a manatee. <laughs> I, I was rubbing their bellies, but the, my son, the cameraman, uh, you know, he was he was that scene in the in the movie where the manatee was just loving on Dane. He was just getting hugged, and <laughs> uh, that was great. That would have been. I love it. That, that he will remember forever. No kidding. Oh, yeah. That story is going to be told by his kids and his grandchildren. Yep. I love it. Well, this has been really fun. Yeah. And I know that more of these these stories, these tales um, from the field, stories from the field will, or notes from the field will come up in future episodes. Yeah. And so. Making a point on some other topic that we're on. Exactly. Well, been good. Yeah. Good here. chatting with you, Gordon. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. See ya. See ya.